what I want to know is, like, are people even going to believe Brody and Hooper that they blew up the shark? That's true. He was like, supposed to bring home the head, the tail, the whole damn yeah. thing. He didn't they just come swimming home and, like, Quentin disappears. For all I know, they had a big fight in the water and sunk this dude's boat and they yeah. escaped. I don't know. Pixar didn't happen. Like, I, prove to me that you got this shark. <laughs> Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn. We are exploring a total smash hit, Jaws. So, da 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 da. You know, for two notes, <laughs> that must be the most recognizable sequence of music in cinema history, right? Oh, yeah. Although I did read that when John Williams first played the note, like the two notes for him, I was uh-huh. like, this is what I want to do with the score. Steven Spielberg laughed at him. But last laughs on Steven Spielberg because it is absolutely iconic. So I read that Steven Spielberg used John Williams for his first movie or a movie before this. And then used them on Jaws. And then they were pretty much inseparable ever after. Oh, yeah. They do everything together. They hold hands and skip a lot. Okay. Well, (laughs) Jaws, huge movie, 1975. It is a film about sharks. Wait, there are sharks in this movie? Uh, There are. um, Oh. Yeah. Uh, What's really interesting is there was a a sequel, actually. Not quite as successful as the initial movie, Uh Jaws 2. And I think the tagline was something like, just when you think it's safe to get back in the water. Right. Um, Which has been mocked mercilessly (laughs) for years afterwards. Yeah, it's a little on the hokey side, but it got the job done. Yeah. Well, Jaws, uh, definitely a huge hit. It was like the quintessential summer blockbuster. Oh, yeah. They released it in 1975, and at the time, it was the biggest grossing movie. And I think it, it retained that title until Star Wars mm-hmm. came out. So huge, huge movie. I think it did over $400 million in the box office in the 70s. Yeah. So pretty crazy uh, success. Everyone loved it. It's a huge film. Steven Spielberg was not the household name that, oh, no. he was, that he is today when this was filmed. This was like his big breakout huge movie. He, did you know that he was a little bit reluctant about taking on the project? I did, actually. So I guess he had done two movies before this, and one of them involved like a big truck scene or something. Yeah, something. he didn't want to be the truck and shark guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think is kind of hilarious in hindsight. I'm sure at the time it was probably a legitimate concern, but today he's Steven Spielberg. He does it all. Do you think he wanted to be the war horse guy? Probably not. It's definitely not his best movie. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, it's okay to be the ET guy. Everybody gets a couple of fails, and Steven Spielberg has comparatively few to his name compared to his smash hits. So, well, I think when he was busy making this movie, he did not have confidence that he was going to get the chance to do Jurassic Park and all those other huge movies that uh, you know dominated cinema for decades. This was was a total bust in the production cycle. Yeah, let's talk about just how terribly the filming of this movie went. So they planned for a filming schedule of 55 days. And young Steven Spielberg had some ambition. 
he decided he was going to do this project legitimately, film it in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Cape Cod. Yeah, Mar- Martha's Vineyard, excuse me. Yeah, it was Martha's Vineyard, and he did not want any swimming pools. He wanted to do it on natural in the actual ocean. Yeah, well, they went over budget a little bit. There were all kinds of mechanical failures with the different sharks and the animatronics there. There were weather issues. There were all kinds of things with with doing the work in the ocean. And it took them nearly three times the original budgeted schedule. I think it was 159 days. Mm-hmm. He thought for sure he'd never get a job again. It was some kind of record to go more than 100 days over the budgeted schedule. I think one of the funniest things about it is that the shark was the biggest problem that they faced because this was obviously pre-CGI, so they were doing this all with just animatronics. And the shark, which they nicknamed Bruce on the set, which, fun fact, did you know that Bruce was the name of Steven Spielberg's lawyer and that's why they call the shark (laughs) Bruce? Can we call you Bruce? (laughs) Uh, I'd prefer that you didn't, but, you know, if it's something you got to do. So, yeah, Good old Brucey caused a lot of problems. They had to go through one animatronic shark after the other. I read that the first shark scene that they were attempting to shoot, they put the shark in the water and it just sank straight to the bottom (laughs) like a stone. So that didn't go real well. So I have to imagine the animatronics went better than their first idea, which was to use a trained actual shark, which they concluded was not going to be successful. <laughs> so I did actually read, apparently they've had, some people have had some success with training some sharks, but great whites are like, uh-uh, I'm not going to go like reach up and grab a fish out of your hand. They're just not about that. So yeah, they're, uh, they're at the top of the food chain and they don't need your, your coaching. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's pretty reasonable. Uh, yeah, there were several sharks uh, in addition to the animatronic ones. I think they had one that they towed for some of the scenes and other stuff too. But ultimately, yeah, the animatronics were difficult. And I think it's what created the movie, mm-hmm. right? Like there's so much drama and suspense around the shark. You don't really see it for a long time. Yeah, almost uh, an hour into the movie, I think. Yeah, you just see like glimpses of it and its effects and they use the music, right? I think... Think about the whole scene where they're hunting the shark. You don't even really see it very much there. You mostly see those barrels being dragged around over the water and not the not the shark itself. So it, it kind of created this less is more kind of thing, more like a Hitchcock kind of movie. And instead of it just being this like gory, horror, suspenseful movie, uh, it became just a little bit deeper. And like you characterize the fear just like when you're in the water right you can't see the shark all the time and you don't know what's around yeah the fear of the unknown is the deepest fear we have right and that's why oceans are so scary because you don't know what's down there and that the image that's the you know classic um, movie poster for it with the shark coming up from below the surface and the swimmer is just blissfully going along no idea that she's about to be chomped in half yeah, that's, that is the fear that it's playing on. And we do such a good job of creating that in our own minds that it worked out a lot better with them not using the actual shark as much as they planned to because of all the animatronic problems. So way to go, 1975 technology. Yeah, well, even with all those issues, I think they spent like $9 million to film it on a budget of approaching $4 million. I think it was a worthwhile gamble by the studio I read actually that they picked up the rights to do this movie before the book. Uh, Peter Benchley, 
published a book and that was the basis for Jaws, the studio picked it up before it was even fully published. So they could tell this was going to be something that could be made into a movie really effectively if done right. And I think kudos to Steven Spielberg. He, he did it right. Yeah, they definitely pulled it off. So Peter Benchley wrote a couple of novels about like sea monsters and Jaws was obviously the biggest hit. But did you know that Peter Benchley is now very remorseful for having written Jaws and has become a real activist for shark preservation and ocean conservation in general? Well, he's doing it wrong. He should have bought into some sort of like shark fin soup company or something like that. (laughs) He certainly made everybody hate that animal. Yeah, he did way too good of a job writing that novel and (laughs) striking fear into the heart of millions, as did Steven Spielberg, for sure. So you're saying before the early 1970s, sharks were seen as cuddly as dolphins, and uh, basically he created those gnashing teeth? Yeah, totally. Everyone loved sharks pre-Jaws. What a jerk. He ruined a species for the whole planet. All his fault. I think it probably just wasn't at the forefront of people's minds as much, you know, sort of like, eh, you know, they're there, but... Shark attacks just aren't that frequent, so like, why would you stress and think about it all the time? Until you've heard those two notes and seen Barusi come out of the water at you. We can't forget that. So Carla, every time I think about Jaws now, I'm reminded to a vacation that we took, our travels in Italy in 2019. We were in Turin, and we were in a museum that was all about movies and cinema. It was really interesting and fascinating. And they had a movie poster there that looked just like the Jaws movie poster, but it had a totally different name. And every time I think of Jaws, I think of that. Yeah. So when we were in Italy, I, we got back to our Airbnb and I looked this up and apparently this is like a hilarious phenomenon. So people in Italy, at least in 1975, but even going up till recently, They like their movie titles to be very explicit and tell them upfront what the movie is going to be about. (laughs) Because otherwise, how would you know whether you want to go see the movie? It's very practical. It's a good call. So they have really hilarious translations of American movie titles. So Jaws is simply the shark. According to one article I read, the explanation from an Italian as to why they had to call it the shark instead of Jaws was... Well, how would you know that the movie was about a shark if they didn't call it the shark? So you got to call it that. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll talk in a minute about some shark spinoffs that don't all have the word shark in it. And I don't know how we figured it out. (laughs) So do you want a couple of other fun examples of Italian movie titles? I do. Yeah. Because it's so fun to me. Okay. So we did a Home Alone episode. Home Alone in Italy was referred to as Mama, I missed the plane. Which is just really good. But but Home Alone really tells you what happened. (laughs) That's true. It already (laughs) does. So just a couple others I can't resist. Um, Risky Business, that movie with Tom Cruise where he dances around in his underwear. Mm -hmm. So that one is called When the Old People Are Away, The Sons Dance. (laughs) (laughs) That that might be the best movie title I've ever heard. It's pretty good. And The Sound of Music became All Together, Passionately. I mean, if that doesn't make you want to move to Italy, I don't know what will. All right, well, let's bring it back to at least The Shark. So I think after Jaws, there have been a ton of sharky movies out there. What's your favorite? Or are there any others that you uh, appreciate or, you know, make you feel anything? So I have concluded that the shark genre in general 
is crap. Like total crap. I mean, what do you think about Sharknado? Um, Deep Blue Sea is the one that comes to mind. Oh my gosh. So terrible. And they had good people in that movie too, but somehow they couldn't save it. I mean, it's just, it's a very risky category. You basically have to be Steven Spielberg to pull it off. Yeah. So I don't think this is actually part of the same franchise, but I remember a few years back around the holidays, we were flipping around and we saw a movie advertised called Santa Jaws. And uh, we turned it on for a few minutes, and that was literally the worst few minutes of our lives. But you got to give him credit for that name. Come on, man. Was it a Hallmark shark movie or something? It was <laughs> I weird. So. I don't yeah. think so. Okay. Well, all these shark movies are based on the reality that these creatures do have big teeth. And while humans aren't exactly uh, an optimal food source for them, or you know, from the human perspective at least, uh, they do sometimes attack. Yes, they do. Was Jaws inspired by anything at all? I know you were telling me about some attacks in 1916 uh, that happened on the in New England somewhere. Tell me, tell me, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so there's some dialogue in the movie Jaws about this incident, and it did happen in real life. So it was in 1916 along the Jersey Shore, and there were five people attacked by sharks. Four of them were killed. And they are pretty sure that at least three of the people were killed by a single great white shark. So it's really unusual circumstances. Two people were just killed, you know, swimming in the ocean. Pretty standard stuff. But the other three were attacked in a freshwater creek that was attached to the ocean, which bull sharks are known to get into brackish waters. Um, Great whites are not. But they think it was this great white that went into the creek and first attacked a little boy named Lester Stillwell. And yeah, poor Lester. Um, Lester didn't make it. There were two grown-ups who saw this kid in trouble in the water, didn't realize what was happening, thought maybe he was having a seizure. So they get in the water. One of those grown-ups got killed by the shark. Wow. And then like half an hour later, down the creek, the same shark um, attacked a third person. And I think that was the guy who ended up surviving. But then shortly thereafter, they caught a great white and did, just like in the movie, they opened up the stomach and there were some human remains in there. So that was real fun. Man. But it it did spark an absolute hysteria. And this is the super sad part. They went on an absolute hunting spree and killed hundreds and hundreds of sharks trying to find the one who had <laughs> killed everybody. But... I like they found that one great white that came out of the creek pretty darn quickly. And then everyone was still like, no, we got to kill them all. So, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of sharks died. So it has sad. I mean, five people and hundreds of sharks. It's a sad, very sad story. I'm I'm a little more sad about the five people than the hundreds of sharks. I guess I'm just cruel like that. (laughs) I mean, they're both tragic. It's all terrible. Lots of lost life. But yeah, so shark hysteria definitely has a precedent in real life. And what we see in Jaws is probably not crazy unrealistic. I mean, it was still the 70s. I think people were more conservation-minded, but not as much as they are today in 2022. So So Jaws came out in 1975. It's it's approaching its 50th anniversary. And for our older viewers out there, our listeners who, who haven't, Watch the movie in a while. Let's give a quick kind of recap of the plot. 
to take us into our discussion about some of the events in the movie. So it starts off on the beach. There's some, you know, college age kids out having a party and two of them go skinny dipping. One of them's too drunk to actually get in the water. And one of them gets pulled under by a mystery object and seemingly dies. Of course, we find out later that that woman has been attacked by a shark, or at least that's what we're led to believe. The police chief, Chief Brody, has the coroner examine the body, and that's his conclusion. And when Chief Brody realizes this, he concludes they've got a man-eater on Amity Island, and they've got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So they go, and they buy signs, they make these nice, cute little homemade signs. It's really great. (laughs) They go to put them out around, and the mayor steps in and says, what's going on? Turns out he convinces the coroner, the the medical examiner, that this was likely a boat accident and not a shark attack. And I think reluctantly, Chief Brody accepts this and they keep the beaches open. And he's nervous about it and people really aren't getting the water too much. And then a real attack happens with everybody there on the beach and everything spirals out of control from there. Let's jump into a clip of the movie where we have Police Chief Brody arguing with the mayor. They've also got Richard Dreyfus coming in playing a uh, an oceanographer here who is uh, part of the team helping to go understand what's going on. There's been a few arguments here between the mayor and the police chief, and we think this one's a little bit entertaining. So let's play, kind of hear what the, the mayor's perspective is on all this happening. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell, for Christ's sake. Look, sakes. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer unless you deal with this finished. problem. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. I mean, we're going to have to tell the Coast Guard. Mr. Vaughn, you have to contact the shark We're going to have to put extra deputies on because you have to ruin the world is going to come in here. I don't think one one of you are familiar with our problems. I think that I am familiar with the fact that you are going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass. There's a little bit of fire there. Some oh, good acting. Richard Dreyfus, I love him in this movie. Did you know that Richard Dreyfus was a little bit? He was also reluctant to play a part in this movie, and he watched a screening of some other movie that he was in, and wasn't very confident about his performance, and was worried he wouldn't get hired. So he like rushed to go accept the role and do the part, so that uh, like he could have another shot at redemption. Turns out the role that he wasn't so thrilled with himself in was got, got quite a bit of critical acclaim. So. I don't know what he was thinking, but he actually made this part. And Jaws, although Peter eventually wrote this great book, uh, they didn't quite use all of that. It's a challenge to turn a book into a screenplay, and there's a lot of editing on the fly. And, of course, if you're going to go 100 days over schedule, there's lots of time for rewriting. <laughs> and I think they really kind of rewrote the part a lot to fit Richard Dreyfus. Oh, yeah. In the book, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife, but they cut that out of the movie, which I think was good. I like that Brody has that solid relationship with his wife. Yeah, I think that was a good creative choice. So Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, uh, he's arguing with the mayor here along with Chief Brody. And, you know, he's he's an oceanographer. What are the ichthyologists? Those are the shark people? Those are the shark people. Okay. What do they think about this sort of thing, right? If you have a shark that is attacking on around a beach and there have been a couple of incidents, are you supposed to shut it down? Is that actually effective are we supposed to all go out and hunt for the animal? Like, what? what's the deal? So apparently shark experts, a.k.a. ichthyologists, are kind of torn on whether it makes any sense to close down a beach after an incident like this. 
Obviously, it is costly to the town, as we hear the mayor talking about. But on the other hand, you don't want people getting eaten by sharks. Um, So the question is, does it help? I think some shark experts think, just do it for a day, which I think is what's pretty standard protocol in a lot of places like Hawaii and Florida. That's what they do. Um, Give the shark 24 hours to swim away and sort of forget how yummy that human may have been. So let him mosey on down to, to attack people somewhere else? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So does it do that much good? Eh, I don't know. I think a lot of people think it's just sort of like, what else can we do? Let's give that a shot. But the thing that I think is so funny about this is you probably don't have to close the beaches. Probably all you have to do is put up a sign that says like, shark sighted here on X date <laughs> and no one's going to get in the water. Like people will be scared. So you probably don't need to round up a posse, go hunting and close the beaches, huh? Yeah, I mean, definitely no hunting is required. I think it's just a question of, like, giving the shark time to sort of forget about humans as a potential food source. So, Carla, when you suggested Jaws to me as a show to do on pennies and popcorn, I kind of laughed. I'm like, there's there's really not a whole lot of money stuff to talk about in there. And you brought up a topic that smacked me over the head, and I felt like kind of an idiot for not considering. And that's the last few years we've experienced here with COVID-19. Yeah, this was actually one of the very first things that I remember thinking about in like February, March of 2020, when COVID was first emerging, was, oh my God, these the governments are acting like the mayor in Jaws. <laughs> They're just like prioritizing, you know, profits over human safety. And Jaws seems a heck of a lot more realistic to me now than it did when I first saw it as a kid, I think the parallels between COVID and what we see in the movie are very interesting. There's a lot to explore and unpack there. So I'm excited to talk about it a little bit. Okay, well, let's put your mayor hat on. Let's call you Mayor Cash. When would you have taken action in the sequence of events that happens in Jaws? When would you have closed the beaches? So if I had an oceanographer slash ichthyologist who was coming to me and saying, look, this is really dangerous. you got to close down the beaches. That's the best thing to do. I would like to think that I would listen to him the first time he told me that. It's so hard to like make an honest analysis of where I would be in the movie, though, because I know that the science about sharks in this movie gets like an F minus. In reality, sharks are extremely rarely like man-eaters. I mean, we've, we have one incident in recorded history of a great white attacking three people in the span of a very short time, but like, this is not something that happens a lot. So I think if I had Hooper coming to me, I probably would have been like, look, dude, let's look at some history. You're not going to be able to Google this in 1975, Carla. That's true. That's true. And Come I on, respect Mayor Cash. that. I respect you, that. You got to, you got to lead this community here what yeah. are you gonna do yeah so let's let's go through the incidents okay would you close down the beaches as soon as the, that girl washed up on shore or would you leave them open i i would defer. would you follow through with chief brody's plan to close down the beaches knowing the effect that you're going to have on the economy put yourself in politicians shoes and government leader shoes in February, March, April of 2020 as COVID is picking up, right? Do, do you shut down businesses? Tell everybody to stay home. Do the best you know with the science you have. You, 
Just like in 1975, Mayor Vaughn, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. couldn't Google this. You're not going to be able to Google anything about COVID in 2020 that's going to be helpful yeah, at the time. That's so true. I think as time has gone on and we've learned so much more about the virus, and obviously it just has lasted for so, so long. <laughs> um, I think my my thinking has changed on the balance of preventing people from getting COVID and allowing people to go about their very important daily routines and the very real effects that it has on health and human safety to bar people from doing many of the things that they regularly do, like going to school, going to the grocery store, you know, as they please and not like on a restricted schedule and going to the office. And so what I'm hearing you say is in the face of uncertainty, you would take a very conservative approach to the acute risk that you don't know that much about and take in exchange for that the long-term risk, which is totally reasonable. I think that's what most governments did at the very beginning of the pandemic. What's difficult here though, you know, in the pandemic, the economy shut down and government stepped in to go ensure there was a social safety net to take care of everybody. You said something about life versus profit before, but I think it's it's not really profit that we're talking about with the, the businesses here. In Amity Island, as the mayor said accurately, they are a summer community. Right, They rely on all of the tourism that comes to their beaches. That's what keeps people in their hotels. That's what gets their restaurants to make it through the year. The winter, I'm sure, is incredibly tough for that area. And everyone who works there, who owns a business there, like exists to serve that tourism market. And if that plummets, they don't have enough money to go pay the kids who stock the shelves at the grocery store or the people who own the auto repair shop or whatever else they have going on on the island that isn't even directly related to the tourism. With COVID, you have this huge everywhere effect where there is government stepping in to solve the problem. But the mayor here doesn't have a budget to go ensure that half the town doesn't have to live off of welfare checks. So my thought process has changed over time. I recognize that it is not just about life versus profit. Profit is really just another way of saying people's livelihoods. Certainly in the Jaws case, we see people who are, you know, have had businesses on the island for many, many decades, through many generations. Just one bad summer could be enough to knock them off their course. And suddenly you're looking at having to sell the family business and people are moving and the whole town could suffer. But that still has to be weighed against getting chewed up by a shark, which is oh. the ultimate worst thing. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, I get that there are very serious considerations to take into account in people's livelihoods. Ultimately, that you know livelihoods affect health and safety because your ability to put food on the table is related to your health and safety. However, you've got a very acute risk that is real and identified. And those other things are kind of nebulous and maybe will happen down the road. So it's a really tough position to be in, but I guess I sympathize more with the mayor as time goes on and as COVID has dragged on than I did at the beginning. Well, Mayor Cash, I think you're gonna have a difficult reelection bid. What I will say is that government's role in economic choices like that, they have a difficult position to be in, but a really essential one. You know, there are other things in life where we're doing a balance between 
economic reality and loss of life. Take safety standards in cars. I'm sure if we didn't have all the seatbelts and airbags and backup cameras and requirement to have functioning windshield wipers <laughs> and, and other requirements they have in automobile manufacturing, uh, there'd be a lot more people that died in car accidents every year. And but it would be cheaper to make the cars. Yeah, cars would be cheaper. You could pass <laughs> those cost savings on to the consumer. You could be more profitable for the auto manufacturers. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a win for everybody, except for those people who the extra deaths. Yeah. I don't mean to suggest that government doesn't have a role to play there. It is absolutely huge in so many things in life. And I don't envy being the mayor of Amity Island when there are these shark attacks here. And basically you have to choose between possibly saving a life. You don't know if you're, if anyone's actually at risk or not, if the sharks moved on or possibly crippling the economy of your community, causing people to lose their houses, people to lose their jobs, their businesses, and you may not recover. I mean, he made a great point one of the other arguments. The tourists that come there will just go somewhere else. There's other beaches in the New England area that they could go visit. It's a very real conundrum, and I appreciate that. I'm still on Brody and Hooper's side. I think they're right. And, I mean, obviously they turn out to be right in the movie. So I, I think you just wanted to go shark hunting. And I think that should take us into our next clip. The mother of the young boy who was killed in front of everybody on the beach put out a $3,000 bounty to go get that shark. And a whole bunch of people were interested. But there's a guy, uh, Quint, played by Robert Shaw. And by the way, Robert Shaw, the filming of Jaws, I think was being a bit of a booze hound. Yeah, he was drunk about 90% <laughs> of the time. Yeah, uh, but he did an awesome job. And I think it, it worked with his character. Uh, anyway, I think he was really difficult to work with, but it, it, it really fits with the, the person he's portraying. He shows up at uh, a meeting of some of the folks in the city to talk about what are they really going to do and whether the approach that they're taking with this $3,000 bounty is really going to get it done. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. It's bad fish. It's not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cards. This shark, swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. I don't bring back the tourists, I don't put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. You gotta make up your minds. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. $10,000 for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. I'll catch that bird for you. I think, is there a way we can make a movie that's just Robert Shaw monologues like that? <laughs> He's so good at that. Yeah, he definitely does the monologue thing well. Let's, let's take the numbers that we hear here and convert them to modern day. So the $3,000 bounty that they put out there uh, is in the neighborhood of $15,000 today, which means the $10,000 that he's asking for is about $50,000. Let's, let's talk first about the $3,000 or the $15,000 equivalent. That sounds like a nice side hustle, right? Sounds like a dangerous side hustle. Okay. I mean, there are all kinds of amateur boaters, amateur fishermen. It's kind of like people are just looking for a fun day out on the water and hopefully yeah. they'll catch this man-eating shark and save the day, be the hero, and 
and get paid for it too. Do a little recreational boating, do a little bringing home a 25 foot shark, you know, no big deal. I mean, there were maybe a dozen different boats going out there with the, like throwing dynamite in the water, all kinds <laughs> yeah. of ridiculous things. Yeah, uh, people were enterprising though, you got to give them that. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if they let that go on for too long, if you would lose more people in the shark hunt. Not from the shark, just for, from their own like lack of skill and talent in the effort. Yeah, well, know, there's... Like boating accidents. Yeah, there's a great scene. Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, um, sees all these guys going out in these like overloaded fishing boats. They have like 10 guys on these tiny little boats, and they're trying to like get them to follow boating regulations and not have too many people in one boat. And Hooper's kind of shaking his head, and he's like, ah, have fun out there, you're all going to die. That activity was pretty dangerous in and of itself we're we're very pro side hustle side hustles are a great way to boost your savings rate and it's a great thing to do but you got to stick to stuff that you know and stuff that you're at least somewhat good at yeah i would say you need to have a a level of competence before embarking too heavily on a side hustle i realize no one's like i'm gonna go buy a boat i'm gonna go tackle this shark or bring it on in get my 15 g's equivalent in 2022 dollars and then sell the boat back? Like, I don't think I'm trying to do anything ridiculous like that. Let's say you had a boat, and you were an okay fisherman. It was like a fun time for you. Uh-huh. Um, it sounds like you're not willing to go take a group of your closest friends out for a day on the water in the hopes that you might go catch $15,000 worth of shark. I mean, I'm sort of morally opposed to shark hunting. You're saving the community. This this is <laughs> yeah. the man-eater that defied the ichthyologists. Yeah, yeah. I get that within the realm of imagination in the movie, you are saving lives. But in reality, by hunting a shark, you're just killing a shark. Like, you're almost certainly not saving a life. Carla, remember your law school days. Don't fight the hypo. <laughs> but I have to fight the hypo. It's so bad. But if I'm not fighting the hypo, I don't know. I still don't think I would have... You don't think you have the skills? Yeah. You don't. You think it's too risky? I'm not a shark hunter. It's just not going to happen. Would you? I don't think I'd be afraid to get out in the water with a shark like that. I, there's no evidence at that point that the shark is attacking boats. I think it would be an interesting experience to go out and, and do it. I, I wouldn't have any realistic aspiration to catch it, and I'm sure I wouldn't have the equipment. Right? You can't just catch a, a huge shark with your like 10-pound test line on your fishing real that you bought from walmart for 18 dollars yeah. or whatever yeah. i have would have because i i'm not a fisherman obviously uh, just based on my description of the tools you'd have <laughs> yeah that's clear <laughs> the angler you are not yeah but yeah i mean you're gonna have to have some pretty specialized equipment to bring home a 25 but if, if you already have a boat that's there on the island you maybe you likely already have the tools to to go do some big game fishing it just Seems like you're going to need a pretty big boat, which of course is one of the most famous lines in the movie. (laughs) You're going to need a bigger boat, which actually I read was ad-libbed by Roy Scheider, who plays Chief Brody. But apparently that was something that the crew of the movie had been like laughing about because they actually had a boat sink. Did you know this? Mm -hmm. When they were filming. And so it was kind of like a running joke on set was like, how we're going to need a bigger boat. And then Roy Scheider <laughs> said it in the movie and it just stuck. and Became a huge line. Yeah, one of the best lines people remember. Overall take on Quint here, he seems like he knows what he's doing. So if you're the mayor, the response that he gets from the, the mayor at this point is we'll take it under advisement. Do you think that's the right call or should they have like hired him on the spot? So should the city do this 
they aren't putting up any money right now. This is just the mother of that poor young boy who'd been the victim of the shark attack who's given $3,000. So I don't know what the city's finances look like. If you're really worried, which this mayor clearly isn't, uh, about this shutting down your local economy for a long time, you probably should hire a professional. If you're going to go get wedding photographs taken, you can hire somebody who does this as a hobby, who is like a novice side hustler on this, or you can hire somebody who does it professionally, and you're going to get different results. You can have people who are wedding photographers who do it as a side hustle and do it all the time, and that's what they do basically every weekend, and they're practically a professional wedding photographer. But all these people who are the fishermen with the dynamite are clearly not shark hunters. And that's what that's what Quint is, right? He's a, a professional shark fisherman. If you want the job done right, you need to hire people who have the right tools, the right skills. If you want it done promptly, there is certainly something to be said for having a divide and conquer approach with all those people, with the, the, the bounty and the posse of people going after this shark. I, I think at this time, if I'm the mayor and I'm not prepared to close the beaches, why are you going to pay Quinn? You're just going to let keep going. This is the part where I start to really, really think poorly of the mayor. I understand his concern for the people of the town who depend on the tourists for their livelihoods. By hiring Quint, he's protecting the safety of the swimmers and he's protecting the livelihoods of the townspeople. So it seems like this is the no-brainer, right? This is like the equivalent of funding research to make a vaccine or to make a COVID treatment, right? This is the point where you got to say, okay, the government's going to step up and solve this problem. We're going to make the necessary call. I think as the mayor, you could have negotiated a deal with Quint here where his pay is based on delivery. Yeah. You, you probably need to pay him some sort of mobilization fee, some sort of initial deposit to get things started. Surely you don't have to pay him the full $10,000 or $50,000 in today's money if he doesn't deliver you the, the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Exactly. Maybe you could get it done for $1,500 and get him out there. And if he doesn't deliver or somebody else delivers, fantastic. Yeah, you could even set up a payment plan with good old Quint here. Caught the shark for us. Great job. We'll pay you $300 a month until we're made whole. Like if that's all they can afford to do. This is the solution. Again, within the imaginary universe <laughs> of the film, we, are, we do not condone the hunting of sharks. In the film, this is presented as the best solution that they have. And I think the mayor, this is when he seems greedy to me and is prioritizing just like the coffers of the city over the welfare of the townspeople and the literal lives of the swimmers. See, I don't think he's trying to protect the city's $10,000. I think it's much more just that by admitting that there is this huge problem that can't be solved with the bounty that's out there, uh, I think he's trying to play ostrich here as the mayor, even though he's seen the the carnage that the shark is doing. I don't get the sense that he wants to face it head on and he's just trying to ignore the problem until it bites him in the ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like that's what my problem with him, though, is. But you're like saying he's, he's protecting the city. Like, well, he's trying to not. hoard the money in the city's budget. Yeah. I don't think he gives a darn about, like, I that do. little bit of the city's budget. I think they can afford it. They can swing it. This is Amity Island. 
he definitely seems super hesitant to do it. The one thing I will say here is that as government, and government always has this challenge with the valuation of different things, and when they get multiple bids and multiple ways to accomplish something, we seemingly are always choosing the lowest first cost. We don't need to rip on the procurement process of governments too badly, but I would always challenge anybody when buying anything to think about the different amounts that you can choose to pay for it and the differentiated results that you're going to get for whatever it is here. And we, you know, we eventually see that, that Quint is the only one who's even close to equipped to go get the shark. And the rest of those fishermen were just out for a day on the water. The, let's call it the third act of the movie is basically Quint and Hooper and Brody out on the water together. But before this, we see a little bit where Brody and Hooper are on a boat together for the first time. And poor Brody is not exactly Mr. Island Waterman here, but Hooper reveals a little bit about himself. Who pays for all this stuff? Government? The Institute? This stuff costs a lot of money. Well, I, uh, I pay for this mostly myself, actually. You're kidding. No. You rich? Yeah. Yeah, how much? Well, personally or the whole family? Doesn't make any sense. I mean, they pay a guy like you to watch sharks? Well, uh, doesn't make much sense for a guy who hates the water to live on an island either. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, so this scene is so great to me because it's kind of a little mini diversion away from the actual plot of the movie which is you know catch the killer shark and we learn this fascinating little tidbit about Richard Dreyfuss's character Hooper he's basically like filthy rich he comes from some super rich family and apparently has inherited a lot of wealth I just love it so much to have this insight into that character because it just makes him skyrocket in my level of esteem for him because he does not have to be doing any of this, right? He's sounds like he doesn't have to work for a living at all, but he is chasing this passion that he has for sharks. I just think it's one of the coolest things when people love something so much that they do it without a thought to the money. Yeah, I would say that you know, many people are just trying to chase some money. If you are born into wealth, you're probably expecting to try to grow that wealth even further and trying to chase after some money that way. Or maybe things didn't push you in the right direction and you're kind of doing nothing. But I love that he's picked something that he's so enthusiastic about that makes him happy when he doesn't have to. That's pretty darn cool. It definitely ties in to the idea of striving for financial independence, right? Hitting a number in savings to where you feel pretty confident that you don't have to work for a living anymore if you don't want to. You know, you see a guy like this, obviously he didn't strive for financial independence. He just had it handed to him. But in some ways, I think that makes it, it's an even harder thing to overcome to just be handed a lot of wealth and still turn out to be someone who has the kind of moral fiber to go do their own thing, break out on their own, follow their own dreams instead of just like following into the family footsteps, doing the family business, whatever that may be. Or he could just be sitting on a beach somewhere sipping Mai Tais, but that's not what fulfills him. That's not what brings him joy and satisfaction. He certainly, with his financial resources, has the ability to go jump around and do some cool things, right? Instead of getting on the orca 
to go hunt this shark. He had an opportunity to go do some shark stuff, I think, in Australia or New Zealand or something mm-hmm. like that. He had the opportunity to, to head over there, which he had the money to go fund. But, you know, he's, he's risking his life. He's studying something. He's contributing to society in a way that maybe would be really difficult to fund without his fabulous wealth. So our, our sister podcast that our friends Doug Cunnington and Carl Jensen have, the Mile High Fight Club, they put out a podcast with an interview with somebody who they called the Indiana Jones of financial independence. Yeah, that was a cool episode. This guy uh, had, I think, a relatively ordinary job. I, I frankly don't remember what he did uh, in his younger days, but he he reached a state of financial independence, retired early, and has just been doing incredible, cool things. Right? He went on like a dinosaur dig, right, and and mm-hmm. helped uncover some kind of dinosaur. He went on a not a treasure hunt, but basically, he, no, it was a straight up treasure hunt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he invested in a company that. Uh, had the dive rights to some sort of wreckage. When I think of Hooper, I think of that same guy, right? He's This guy has plenty of money and doesn't have to do maybe a traditional job and can kind of do some some really cool things, which is just what this guy, the, the, would you say the episode was called? The, the Indiana Jones of, of Fi, Financial yeah. Independence. If, you, if that interests you, check it out. The Mile High Fi episode. We'll, really, put really a, cool. we'll put a link in the notes. But yeah, it just is a very inspiring little tidbit from an otherwise crazy shark adventure movie (laughs) makes you go wow that's that's inspiring you know i wish everybody could live a life where they didn't have to worry about money and were free to just chase passions because it's a pretty cool thing but when you see people who don't have to do it and are out there doing something that's kind of scary and risky even but it's just because they absolutely love it i think it's pretty cool I think it's just a good reminder that we all have a lot of inertia in our lives, right? We're all going down some kind of path already and we're doing something. Hopefully we're spending our days in ways that enrich us and ultimately make us happier than they would be if we weren't doing that thing. And we're, we're close to the, the thing that makes us the most happy. But I'm pretty sure the numbers and the data doesn't really back that up. And that a lot of people just aren't that thrilled with their everything in their life, in particular their work life. I think it's just a good reminder that we should pay attention to the fact that we have some inertia and it doesn't have to be the only direction that we're going, especially if you're in the state of financial independence. You can really pause and try to find your happiness and make sure what you're doing is is actually going to be rewarding and something you're going to thrive in and you're excited to do rather than just sort of carrying forward on the, the trajectory that you're already on. Yeah, and you certainly don't have to be financially independent to do that. I think it's a really helpful thought exercise to think, what would I do if I were at that phase of not having to work? And then make that happen now. You know, if it's any kind of a job, like I'm sure Hooper gets paid some money from the Oceanographic Institute where he seems to be employed. So he buys a lot of equipment on his own. But it's a reminder that you should be chasing that dream life if you have one, and I hope I hope everyone does, um, without worrying about whether you're at some magic phi number or not. So, well, let's push forward into what is our last clip here. We've jumped around a little bit in the movie, but you have the woman who's skinny dipping that gets attacked. You have the little boy on the beach who gets attacked. They have a scene where uh, 
they keep the beaches open, but they have some extra security. They have a bunch of police out there in boats. And you see a shark out in the ocean. You see the dorsal fin out there. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's really, really scary. Turns out just a couple of kids goofing around, causing trouble. Cardboard fin. Yeah, and they nearly get shot. So (laughs) word of advice, don't do that. But at the same time, over in the pond, underneath the bridge, I guess, a bay or whatever it is, uh, they had some people in the water, including Chief Brody's kid. I think the mayor's kid was out there. There were a bunch of people. And the shark ends up over there and causes some damage, kills a guy, kills a guy. puts you know, Chief Brody's kid into total shock. And you know, it's a horrendous, horrible thing that, that touched the mayor pretty closely. And he decides to give in and pay Quint the money to go get that shark. Yeah, let's listen to him sign the contract. Because you're going to do what you do best. You're going to sign this voucher so I can hire a contractor. I, I don't I don't know if I can do that without... Uh, I'm going to hire Quint to kill the shark. August. What? August. What? What are you talking about? Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I was... I was... I was acting in the... In the town's best interest. That's right, you were acting in the town's best interest, and that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why you're going to sign this, and we're going to pay that guy what he wants. Martin. Martin. My kids were on that beach trip. Sign it, Larry. He's so worried about spending that 10K. He's so stressed out by it. So what is the thing that makes him change his mind and agree to open up the purse strings and make it happen? When it gets personal, people totally change their perspective. Nobody holds their principles when it gets personal. Yeah, that's, that is the line there. My kids were on that beach too. That's what he says. Yeah. And I mean, that's the turning point for so many people. You know, you have one opinion strongly held. And then something happens to you that really changes your view. There's nothing like personal experience to (laughs) rattle your cage and make you rethink things. It's so infuriating. Why can't people be more like robots and just analyze every situation, understand how it should be, and then make the choice like that? I don't know if I've said this on this podcast or not, but it is a long-held suspicion of mine that Robert is a robot from outer space who's simply pretending to be a human. So... Yeah. I'm you trying to mimic the behavior. I'm working on it. You're doing an okay job. It's okay. okay. So, yeah, when stuff gets personal, your opinion changes. And when I think about where this hits home with money for me is in investments. We're big fans of index fund investing, a buy and hold for the long-term kind of strategy. Easy to say that when the market is climbing, everything is gradually going upwards, you know, you buy that investment, you see it gradually grow, you're feeling good about it, you're putting more money in over time, everything's great. Until that time when there's a crash. I, I want to say we, we've had just about a 10% drop in the market here in the recent term as we're getting close to recording this episode. Mm-hmm. Let's say it drops a whole lot further. I, I think that's a great case where people's principles and what they believe in and what they know to be true, it is really hard to hold on for the ride. Yeah, so the standard advice is to not sell during the slump, right? Because obviously, <laughs> to make money, you need to buy low and sell high. But Carla, so, I can time it. I can just get out now before everything gets really, really bad and yeah, then buy back in later at the bottom. It would be awesome if you could. But last time I checked, your 
alien robot skills did not extend to predicting the future. So yeah, people's crystal. I need a software upgrade. You do need a software upgrade. People's crystal balls just flat don't work. Whether you're Jim Cramer, you know, famous like stock predictor guy, or anybody else, like you're just basically throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping to get lucky occasionally. You don't know how far it's going to go or when it's going to start to tick back upwards. But so so you're not supposed to sell during a slump. And that You're is, supposed to buy in a slump, yeah, right? It's on sale. For Get sure. you some more of that. That is, that is the good advice that people should follow, and it's what we have strived and so far have managed to follow, I think. But that doesn't mean that when you're checking your accounts and you're seeing your retirement account balances go down and you know money that you've worked so hard to save and it's just slipping away, drifting away into the ether possibly never to be seen again, you have this powerful urge to save what's left, right? You want to grab whatever's left before that goes away too. And that's when it gets personal for you. Those are your (laughs) hard-earned dollars that you are desperate to not lose completely. A reasonable analogy for this scene is like, that's when it gets real and personal for you when you have that like, oh, my kids were on that beach too kind of moment. Yeah, your conclusion for how to interpret the theory and what's the right thing to do in so many things, whether just day-to-day life or money-related or whatever, definitely changes when it hits home, when it hits you. Yeah. Fortunately, in the movie universe, it motivates the mayor to do the right thing. At least it seems like the right thing. Again, we don't like killing sharks. It seems to motivate the mayor to finally say, okay, time to pony up, spend some dollars and protect some human beings. So they write the check. They go hire Quint. He's going to go get the shark. And before we hang up here, I want to talk a little bit about some of my thoughts on the, on the boat scenes and that sort of thing. The USS Indianapolis story that he recounts, totally true. The Quint recounts? Yeah. Like, I don't think many people realize this. This isn't just some fictional story that's been put together for the movie. But this is based in reality. There really were... Tragic, huge losses from sharks there in the middle of the ocean feeding on these people on their relatively secret mission. That That's pretty accurate. Well, I will say that I think not all of the, the men who were in the water died from shark attacks. Oh, sharks may have eaten the carcasses that yeah, were floating on the yeah, surface. They just yeah. died of like exposure and things like that because they were in the water for a good, good bit and it's hard to survive just treading water, you know, holding on to like pieces of flotsam that are hanging out in the ocean so but there were a lot of shark attacks it's a scary scary thing so another thing on the boat that i thought was interesting is chief brody makes a mayday call right he goes mayday mayday but gets on the radio and quint isn't having any of it he wants to catch this shark as quint he doesn't want anybody else coming out and helping he's he's the king of the ocean basically Uh, yeah uh and he breaks the radio which was moronic right they they needed that radio But I was really disappointed in Chief Brody making a mayday call there. Mayday is supposed to mean that you are like in an imminent loss of life situation if you don't get immediate help. They have other calls you're supposed to make. Like if somebody came to rescue them with their mayday call, they're supposed to abandon their boat there, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there are other. I think Pan Pan is one of them that you're supposed to use when you're seeking help, but you're not necessarily about to die. The boat wasn't sinking at this point. Yeah. Right. I mean, the shark had hit it and it it had caused some damage, but they could likely still limp along to shore. This wasn't the period where the shark is 
on the boat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? This isn't where uh, Hooper has escaped his shark cage and is hiding out at the bottom, hoping that somebody deals with the shark before he runs out of oxygen and mm-hmm. his scuba tank, right? It's it's not anything like that. So it was an inappropriate use of Mayday, and I feel like maybe it has contributed to the cultural lexicon of trying to go make a Mayday call at a time when it's inappropriate. So you should have called a Pan Pan. Yeah, Pan Pan. Pan Pan. Yes. Uh, the other thing, I remember as a kid watching this and thinking, oh my gosh, like, if you're on a boat like that in the ocean and your engine goes down, you're screwed, <laughs> right? Like, who has the skills and knowledge to maintain a boat like that when something, like, you're not a mechanic, that's, you're screwed. And who would ever go out in the water like that? It's like a, it's like a death sentence, which... As an adult, I realized that if you own a boat like that and you're a commercial fisherman like Quint, you're also a part-time mechanic. Yeah, you just have to be. <laughs> you have to really develop no those skills uh, because it's so critical because you could get in a really horrible position and may not get any help. Maybe your radio broke because you hit it with a baseball bat and <laughs> no one can come help you. Uh, but at the same time, you got to have some maintenance skills. So if anybody's thinking about going on a shark hunting side hustle, make sure you do know how to maintain your boat. So one last question for us to consider. Do you think that the town of Amity, which, by the way, I just love that name. It is a wonderful name. It means friendship, and it's just such a lovely word. So the town of Amity, do you think they will ever recover from this? Do you think they're going to get their tourists back, or will they be Shark City forever? Well, what I want to know is... Like, are people even going to believe Brody and Hooper that they blew up the shark? That's true. He was like, supposed to bring home the head, the tail, the whole damn yeah. thing. He didn't they just come swimming home and, like, Quint disappears. For all I know, they had a big fight in the water and sunk this dude's boat and they yeah. escaped. I don't know. Pixar didn't happen. Like, I, prove to me that you got this shark. <laughs> right? Maybe they scooped some shark fin out of the water and then brought it home with them on their kickboard. Yeah. And they were coming back into the island. A couple of things about Amity's recovery. One, we know that they do recover enough for the town to exist because Jaws 2. Yeah, happens. Same place, right? Uh, another shark comes into the area and, and they haven't had to shut down the community. But the other thing is, if you look at the beach that they're at, this isn't like going deep into the water kind of territory. Nobody's out there surfing, right? Like the beach is... is shallow for a little bit of a ways. A shark this size can't really do damage in a foot and a half of water. You can get in the water a little bit and play in the waves and take your young kids there and not get very far out in the water and not really be exposed to harm because this this was a 25 foot long three ton shark needs several feet like probably four feet of water uh, to just maneuver around in and even then you're going to have the dorsal fin sticking way out of the water. Yeah so you have plenty of time to like get up out of a foot and a half of water and run onto yeah. the beach. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I think, think they could keep their beaches open. Maybe not have everybody there, but the draw for for this is sort of the whole overall beach experience, not being in the mild waves four to eight feet deep. Yeah, I think it's a major plot hole that they could have kept the beaches open and just let people... Yeah. Like, you said put a sign up. Sharks have been around here recently. Yeah. You can still go sunbathing on the beach. You can still have a... Splash around in like a drinks, footer, foot and a half of water. Go to restaurants at night. Yeah. You know, have, have a good time with a family and yeah. enjoy a relaxing holiday weekend or, you know, week at the rental in the summer, whatever yep. it is. I don't I don't think the town has to necessarily die and, and shrivel up. Definitely a plot hole. You could still yeah. 
splash around, cool off, enjoy the beach experience without, you know, going home minus your life or limbs. We know it recovers. I think it would recover pretty quickly. I think that happens even today in places where there are shark attacks, right? There are beaches where stuff happens and you read about it and people move on. and It doesn't shut their shut down the local economy forever. People have uh, short memories, right? And, and, yeah. and we go back and there is always, maybe there's a price cut. Maybe the hotels are 5 to 10% cheaper for a few years until they can bring the business back. But I bet they have sales and there's enough people who are willing to to go stomach it and try it out and take the risk. And I went to Amity and survived. I don't know. Like you <laughs> That's can, true. They could pull it off and, and maybe they could embrace their shark legacy uh, over time and make it part of the marketing for, for their local summer town. Yeah, I think it definitely calls for a t-shirt. I survived Amity Island. I, like I think it. It, I think the town's going to be just fine. I mean, after the 1916 real life attacks, there was definitely a period of shark mania and people were afraid but, you know, sharks just don't hurt people that often. And eventually people got back in the water. So I think Amity would have been just fine. Well, Chief Brody survived the Orca. Mayor Cash survived Amity Island. We should. The Orca <laughs> is the name of the boat. There's yes. not an actual yeah, Orca. No, no whale. killer whales were hurt in the filming of this movie. Yeah. Unlike Free Willy. <laughs> we're going to get to that Ooh, one. Maybe another episode. <laughs> Well, we appreciate all your time today. You survived this episode. So thank you for joining us on Pennies and Popcorn. And until next time, take care. See you next time.